Hey folks, this is Dr. Rob, and welcome to Overcoming Betrayal and Addiction, a podcast brought to you by Seeking Integrity Treatment Programs and hosted by me and my sidekick, Tammy. Say hi, Tammy. Hi, Dr. Rob. Thank you. Our show provides useful answers to your most asked questions about cheating, betrayal, and addiction. Let's get started. My PASA is six months over from a 40-year porn addiction. That is awesome because that's a really long time of being stuck. So so I want to you know, acknowledge that. So he does podcasts and the, the uh, Fortify app, but no 12-step program or CSAT. That is concerning. I know he needs therapy, but is frozen in taking those steps. He has um, HX of sexual, oh, a history of sexual assault at age six. We have sex once or twice a week, but I definitely feel compelled to because he is not in true recovery, not because I feel safe and want to. I want to help him heal, but I can't make him take the next steps. Any suggestions? Thank you so much for asking. We get this a lot. It's like, I want to help him, but I don't know what to do. And and it isn't your job ultimately. So, but anyway, Dr. Rob. Well, I know we're both going to have things to say about this. So we might go back and forth, but Mm -hmm. the word that feels like an absolute gut wrencher, and it's interesting because if you read this, the person put it in quotes, Mm -hmm. which is the word frozen. Mm -hmm. And to me, that feels like a kind of gut punch. Like, look, if he's inside of an ice cube and can't get out, he's probably frozen, but the weather isn't even cold enough to be frozen. So I'm making some metaphors here, but there Mm -hmm. is no frozen. There's a willingness or a lack of willingness. And, you know, if he is sober, then he's shown some willingness. But what does sober mean? And the Tammy's going to go after this. You know, when someone stops drinking, but they don't get the 12-step support they need, or at least intensive therapy, we call that person a dry drunk. And what that means is they may not be drinking, but they're still a a real a-hole. And they continue to be that way, rigid and difficult and narcissistic, because they haven't had to look at themselves. All they did was, you know, pull out the thing that was most upsetting to everyone else. But they still don't know how to cope with relationships and be healthy in intimacy. So they're still difficult. And um, I understand that that is, I get, but that's a place of choice. So a couple of things. Um, I feel compelled to have sex with him. What does that mean? Just like he is not frozen, you are not compelled. Um, There may be for spiritual and religious reasons that you feel an obligation to be sexual with your partner. I cannot speak to that. But that's for your clergy. But beyond that, um, if I don't feel, you wrote, I feel he is not in true recovery, not because I feel safe and want to. I mean, you don't feel safe. Why would you have sex with someone with whom you don't feel safe? So to me, the issue, and I I was going to toss this to Tammy, is one about boundaries. And I want to toss it to you, Tammy, just using that word if I can. Yeah. Healthy boundaries are your physical safety, your emotional safety, which you don't feel safe, financial and spiritual. So, I mean, I look mm-hmm. at all of those areas and they aren't, you know, if you don't do this, then I'm not going to, it's about what, you know, if, but it can be, you know, gosh, uh, you know, I, I would, I vision us having a really great relationship and I want to help, you know, move towards that. But until I really see changes 
and your willingness to step into a true recovery, you know, then I need to hold myself safe. And so that's going to, you know, I'm just making this up. You guys get to pick, take what you need and leave the rest. But, you know, uh, for me, I'm going to ask you to sleep in a different bedroom. I'm not going to have sex with you, you know, cause I, you know, I, I want to feel safe. I want it to be a point right. of connection, not an obligation, you know? We were talking about laundry. I was talking about cleaning. Those are obligations. We're going to do things like that. Sex should not be, in my opinion, one of the obligations. So, but I'm also going uh, like, I'm not Catholic, but I've used this before. You know, I feel like it's purgatory. It's the worst possible place to not act out but not have any recovery tools. It's like, you know, cause if the acting out was the coping mechanism, the maladaptive hope coping mechanism, and now I'm not doing that, but I don't have any tools to use to do things differently, which is what we learn in recovery with 12 step with other people, with our CSAT, with, with unpacking the stuff that happened, the sexual trauma. You know, I mean, like, honestly, that's the stuff that he can get some freedom from the pain of without using his sex addiction, porn addiction, you know, it's, we can learn to do things differently. And, and then it, it can be from a place of healing and joy. We don't have to continue to carry around that pain. So, so he would have a much better and different experience. It goes back to the last person too. I'm stuck on, on step three, you know, then you, you know, it, again, if you want what we have and are willing to go to any links to get it, and I do, I want serenity. I want joy. I want peace. I want the good things in life, not the chaos and pain that, you know, that I carried in, in my addiction. So. I wanted to, you know, Tammy, you know, this, cause I write a lot that words are very um, words and meanings of words are very important to me. And so I went to look up the word compelled and I want to tell you what it means. It means to be forced, to be coerced, to be pressured to be driven. So what the dictionary says is that you, I mean, that you either feel forced or, or, or coerced by the other person, or you feel like you have to convince yourself that you must do something that you don't really want to do. And I wouldn't want to be, I am compelled to pay my taxes. I trust mm -hmm. me. I am compelled to fix my roof because it had a leak, but I am not compelled to have sex with anybody. And if I feel compelled or I am being compelled, there's a, so one more thing. Sex offending, for anybody who ever wants to understand it, it's the simplest thing of all. It's non-consensual. It means the person I'm being sexual with has not consented to seeing me, viewing me, being with me, whatever it is they didn't consent to. And so I would really wonder, you know, if you set a boundary, which is I don't want to be sexual with you because I don't feel safe, what will happen at the other end? To what degree will you feel respected and acknowledged? Or to what degree are you going to get blamed and demanded of? Um, I think that'll say a lot about where that where your relationship is. Remember, right now, we don't set boundaries to create change in other people. We set boundaries to take care of ourselves. But when we set those boundaries, our partners may realize, oh, I can't get away with everything. I can't get everything I want. I can't do anything whenever I ask it, it to happen. And I think that does produce change. Not that you did it to make us change, but because we're used to having what we want and all of a sudden we can't have what we want and why not? And, oh, I guess I'll have to get to work if I want to have that. So in that way, you're setting your boundaries is good for, for every part of the recovery process. So, okay. The next question is my essay husband had what I would classify as a slip. 
We had a big argument and I'm sure that triggered him and it definitely triggered me. But I think the idea of slips possibly being part of recovery for addicts hit home for us. Am I being stupid to think him acknowledging his slip and wanting to talk about it? I'm not ready to speak to him right now is a move in the right direction for his recovery, not celebrating his slip, but acknowledging he did something wrong. Well, I'm not in your relationship and I am not personally affected by what you're going through for you in your life. I would feel like I don't want to talk to him and I can't believe he did this. And here we are one more time. And you can't not feel that way. It's that trauma thing. All of it explodes. You can feel you're right back to day one. And I understand that, but this is the best sign of all. <laughs> this is the best sign I can think of that someone took a behavior that they knew your partner took a behavior that they knew would upset you. They knew you would be angry at them. They knew you'd be disappointed. They knew it might set you back and they were willing to tell you the truth anyway. And to me, that is a high sign of recovery. Number one, it's not a relapse because relapse involves making this mistake and then doing it again and again and again and hiding it. This person did not hide it. You, I understand the argument. Like, you know, who would want to go through this all again and who would want to be feeling these feelings? I get it. But yeah, slips are a part of recovery. And I want to say to all 35 people here that it happens. And for every one of you partners who says, if you do this again, I'm leaving you, be prepared to leave. Because this is not recovery in drugs and alcohol where you can not drink and not use the rest of your life. We're trying to integrate like an eating disorder. What is healthy? What is not healthy? How do I manage this? And slips happen. They're not intentional. I'm not necessarily thinking I'm going to go out and do this, but I set myself up to eventually be in a situation where that happens and I make that choice. What do I learn from that? I learn not to go to the situations. I learn not to talk to those people. I learn from my slips. It happens, but it won't happen the same way again, or it may never happen again because, and I'll tell you all this, one of my favorite statements is, you cannot learn if you can't make mistakes. The way we grow and learn is by making mistakes and we learn from them. So I actually expect that someone is likely to have a slip and it's absolutely imperative to me that they go tell their partner, not right away. Um, I would give it a little time. I would talk to someone else first because you don't want to go to your partner and say, oh my God, oh my God, what did I do? And look what I did. And will, will anybody ever forgive me like you? Um, it's best to talk to a sponsor or therapist first, and then you can calmly go to your spouse and say, look, yesterday, blah, blah, blah. And I talked over with my sponsor and this is where I'm at because you said something else um, about not wanting, I, I wouldn't want to talk about it with him either. And I don't think it's your job to talk about it. It's your job to be angry and hurt and disappointed. But there must be some part of every spouse who has that experience that you're talking about that says, you know, I freaking hate this and I can't believe he or she is doing this again. And how could I ever feel love for them when they've disappointed me so many times? All of that will come up, but there'll be a little teeny part of you, I guarantee that'll say, but this is different because now it's not a secret. And I know what's going on. I may hate it, but I know what's going on. And that's different because I have never had honesty from this person before. So um, it's not your job. To, no one should celebrate the slip. But and and it's real, what I would celebrate. I would celebrate his willingness to be honest, his acknowledging that he did something wrong, his trying to figure out how to do it differently. The one thing I don't understand is the argument. Um, we had a big argument. Well, actually, I want to say two things about that. I don't care if you argued, brought in lawyers and, you know, sued each other. 
that is not, that doesn't give me permission to act out. You know, I want to say this to every spouse every time I'm here and you want to write this down because I tell spouses this every time I work with them individually, there is nothing you are doing. Write this down, spouses. There is nothing you are doing or nothing I am doing. Nothing I have ever done. So there's nothing I'm doing and there's nothing I have ever done. And there is, ne- there is nothing I can do to make this person act out. Not in the past, not in the present, not in the future. I can piss them off. I can make them disappointed. I can have a fight with them, but then they can go for a walk. They can go get a pet. They can go, you know, talk to a friend or, you know, talk to a sponsor. Or there are many things that there are a world of things I can do when I'm upset. I can be upset with you. I can be upset with whatever. But the logical conclusion of being upset is never to go act out. If I want to go act out, it's my responsibility. I made that decision. It, it doesn't, it doesn't matter. You may have gained 300 pounds and never talked to me. And, you know, it, it doesn't matter. I decide I could leave you, but I don't have to go hide and keep secrets. And that's my decision. So I want to really intervene on that for everybody, which is it. Uh, I'm sure the fight did trigger him. And I'm sorry you had an argument and I'm sorry it triggered you and your trauma. But I really want to say that there's nothing about that experience that gave this person permission to go act out. And I say that to all you spouses, because sometimes I hear, well, if I hadn't done this, or I need to look at how I've done that, or, you know, I did set him up for acting out or her. It doesn't matter what you did or didn't do. It's up to us to stay sober. Uh, that's I where I was going with all this was the triggers. Cause like the, life is full of triggers and whether it's a fight or a promotion at work, I mean, it doesn't matter. There was right. always an excuse to act out. Things are bad. Things right. are good. doesn't matter. You know, so <laughs> I'm bored, you know? Uh, so, so, um, I, so I, I, I actually uh, agree with that. And the purpose of recovery, well, one of the things about recovery is having a plan, having a plan so that when I am triggered, I know what I'm going to do. And I have to have that plan in advance because I'm never going to think about it with the executive brain, you know, the thinking part of my brain in the moment when I'm triggered because I want to react, you know, and I, I've shared this before, my, my go-to mantra for calming myself down, and I still use it today, is the serenity prayer. And it reminds me that the only thing I have control of is my actions and reactions. And I would say that over and over again, and the the mindfulness of saying that would help calm me down. I didn't like, I got to admit, I would much rather do like Dr. Rob said, you know, it's your fault and you did this. No, is like, regardless of who's doing what, you know, I have no control over any of that stuff. I have, I am responsible for my actions and my reactions. That's it. So, okay. So um, let's see. The next one is. uh, Spouse has sex addiction. Yes. Checking the box. So checking the box is type. He had a slip and didn't tell me for a month. Now he tells Mm. me things about his golf games. I set a boundary to not tell me about slips and relapses now, but now he decides to, sorry to tell me about stuff like golf games. I kind of feel like he can go F himself. I didn't say that, which is a win for me, but I want to implement a boundary that I just want the time he will be home. We have kids and have zero need to know what, what his boundary is. And then there's a correction meant is this boundary. Okay. I don't want to know what he does as he feels he has the power to disclose info to me. He seems okay to disclose. Um, I'm, why don't you start that one, Tammy? And there's well, so, or so if me, you want I mean, to feed different questions, yeah, because there's so well, much yeah. in there. 
Yeah. I mean, it's like, I mean, I think you're being really clear of this is, I want to know because we have children. So I need to know where you're coming and going. It also feels like you have, um, Dr. Rob has talked about this before where, you know, where, where you're still in the fight and everything, it feels like you've been able to extricate yourself and go, don't care. You do you, you know, we have kids. I've, you know, I'm creating my life and taking care of the children and, you know, you're going to do what you're going to do. And that, you know, that is pretty freeing on a lot of levels, you know, because his addiction is not controlling every moment of, of both of your world. So, um, but I also, it's like, yeah, it feels like extraneous information with the golf games. Um, and, and I've heard this before too, with, yeah, he's going golfing with the people that he used to act out with or who were, you know, that at least knew he was acting out. So, so, it can be a non-safe place, even in something that, you know, he's probably not um, golfing with his 12-step buddies is my thought. But, you know, I, the boundaries are personal. If it's working for you, it's working for you. So, um, I, I find this a little, well, first of all, you absolutely have the right to set a boundary and say, I don't want to hear about your slips and relapses. I'm having a hard enough time getting through the day and I've got kids to take care of. And right now, and I don't have therapy support or whatever that is. So please leave me in peace. I don't want to know. Absolutely. Okay. You may feel, I mean, many spouses feel like I've got to know everything right now. I also know spouses who say, if, if you, I couldn't handle it. If you let me, I've got too much on my own plate. So I want to respect and really say that to everyone because some of you feel like, well, this is the, I've got to demand and you don't, um, you can find out, you know, uh, things at a time when it feels safe for you. Um, what else do I want to say to you about this? But then the golf games. So I don't quite understand because it sort of seems like you're saying, I don't want to talk about deep and heavy things with him. But then when he comes home with shallow things, I don't understand why he's not talking about something meaningful. So, I don't quite understand the question, but I think what you can say, say to him is, I said I wanted to set a boundary on sex and your, your uh, uh, slips or whatever, but I want to have intimate relationships with you and I do want to connect with you and you are important to me and I don't want to hear about the cat. I, in fact, I'll say this. Um, one of the primary things I hear from almost every spouse, every one of you spouses, when you talk about the pain you're in is not necessarily he or she had sex with this person that hurts it's terrifying it makes you crazy i get that but what really is the most hurtful part and what i hear the most from you is i don't feel listened to i don't feel like i'm with somebody i feel like i'm talking to a wall i feel like nothing meaningful happens in our exchanges or conversations i feel alone in this relationship or i feel like i'm raising another child my kids and this person so um i i do think that the issue you're talking about, which is lack of intimacy in your relationship, is one to address. And you can address intimacy, intimacy, honesty, and being connected without, and put a boundary on that particular thing. You know, I can say to Tammy, you know, I really like to talk. I appreciate your friendship, but I don't want to talk about my mom. Great. We don't talk about my mom. Or, or I have even said to friends, I've even heard from friends who are drinking, you know, I have a problem with drinking and, you know, I have a problem with drinking, but I don't want to talk about it. You know, I, I'm just not ready or I don't want to, you know, I respect that. They're going to find out their own issues when they do. Um, and I don't have to hear about it or they don't have to talk about it. So I think what you can say is I want 
intimate conversations and meaningful connections, but I want to put a boundary around that subject. Perfectly fine. You're absolutely right. It's important to say all of that. Okay. So then the next question is, um, my husband hit his sex addiction for 23 years of our marriage. Addiction, alcohol, and gambling is on both sides of his family of origin. My, his dad drank and may have been a sex addict. Worried about it if our children, we get this a lot, if our children, 22-year-old girl and 19-year-old boy, may have inherited this disease. Do we have the talk and let them know their dad is a sex addict? Well, Tammy, you said you get these a lot, so why don't you start? So... I'm the only addict in my family. Like, like I'm not, you know, like there isn't, so it isn't all about hereditary. And I suspect that you as mom has been doing a good job of nurturing. You know, uh, it, it doesn't, many people get enough, you know, within their family situation. It isn't, you know, it isn't just an automatic, oh, you're an addict. So therefore, you know, your children are going to be addicts. Um, I almost didn't have children because of like, I was concerned about that. And I thought, well, that's just ridiculous. And my daughter, my biological daughter has like, she's a lightweight when it comes to alcohol. It's like, it's hysterical. She is not an addict, but you know what? I also gave her enough, you know, she was parented with enough to know that her emotions mattered, that there, there was trust. She could, you know, all of the things to nurture she had, did I do it perfectly? Heck no. But, you know, so, so there isn't, um, Dr. Rob and I have talked about this a lot in other webinars too. Like no kid wants to, I, you, they don't want to know about their parents' sex lives and things. If there's alcohol and gambling, that's usually kind of more obvious. So it can be, there's problematic behaviors and there's some compulsive addictive behaviors and you know he's working on all aspects of this but um but you know i think it's difficult and those are those are young adults um uh so unless you have a suspicion that they are struggling with these issues themselves you know it, it's challenging because it can also put a negative lens on relationships and healthy attachment too so dr rob I agree with you, Tammy. I would never want my children or grandchildren or any of those to know about my sex life. You know, it's just no one, once you hear that, you can't unhear it and you're going to take it to your grave that your parent did this or did that sexually. It's not my kid's job to understand my sexual life. Um, it is okay to tell them that, you know, dad's really been struggling and, you know, with various issues, you know, you know I'd rather not talk about them because they were unique to your dad. But I do want to say that we have a propensity in our family for depression, for addictions, you know, for intimacy relationship problems. Mm -hmm. And so I want you to be aware that those issues can show up for you or your kids. And I want you to um, be able to know that um, there's a history here so you can, you know, be aware I don't think you have to say sex addict. Mm -hmm. You know, I would say emotional issues, some compulsive stuff, some depression. They just need to know that there are issues that may affect them. Um, the other thing is, uh, there's a bunch of things here. Um, I just want to say about family of origin versus, so there are certain things that we do inherit and there are certain things we don't. I do not believe we inherit sex addiction. What I do believe is we inherit a propensity for addictive behavior and mental health problems. And then because of the way we're raised and the things that happen to us, we end up 
as sex addicts. So a lot of behavioral addictions are really about the nature part and not the nurture, I'm sorry, the nurture part and not the nature part. But things like alcoholism, for example, are often biological. And I, Tammy, I would imagine if she wanted to go drink me under the table because she, her, her body is wired to be able to do that. I have a half a glass of wine and I get a headache. So there's a biological propensity. This is why certain ethnic groups are more likely to have alcoholism because that's how their brains and their bodies work. So not, not everyone, you don't always inherit uh, addiction, but you can inherit the potential for addiction. Um, The only thing about, you know, your kids and what they may have from you is, and I'm just going to be really honest. I think our kids observe how we interact with each other. And so if your spouse has been less than supportive of you and you felt anxious about that, if he or she has been distant from you and you felt that, if your communication has not been intimate and they've seen that, then they are going to, uh, their understanding of relationships is going to mirror what you did in front of them. So for instance, with non-intimate parents, I think kids can challenge with intimacy because they've never seen it. But you can learn what it is, what it's about, and how to experience it. So another way to say it is, you know, dad and I have had some issues. And I don't want to deny them. They probably let you down, blah, blah, blah. But I do want you to know if you have challenges, you know, they didn't, they're not just yours. We, we were not perfect parents. I, I want to say this just for me personally. And this is really personal for me. Um, it would have meant the world to me, the world to me. My life would be different if one of my caregivers had said, you know what, our family was really troubled, or we hid mom's mental illness from you, or if there was just any acknowledgement at all that there were actually problems in my family, that would have left taken a lot of pressure off of me because as a little kid, I just thought it was all my fault, and nobody corrected that for me. So I do think to acknowledge at your children that everything wasn't perfect and there are some issues and, you know, they have shown up and they may affect you. I think that is important to say, but the details um, I don't think are important to say, but I do want all of you to know how meaningful it is to a child to say, you know what, we weren't perfect parents. And, you know, we did some of these things and call them out um, because that helps them feel more sane and more understood and more like they're not crazy. I did want to say one thing before we stop about the work that we do, because I don't know that everyone does understand this, but I will say it because um, we were we were writing little biographies, Tammy and I today and stuff to put on our website on the Seeking Integrity website. And one of the things that I had to write was, is that I've trained almost every well, if you include my books and stuff, I have trained every CSAT in the country. Every single one has undergone either my individual personal training in front of a group when they were getting their CSAT, or they've studied some of my books or watched us online and learned from that. So just so you know, I don't know all of them by name, but I, any one of them in the country will call me and reach out to me. And we have a 35-person therapist. We have 35 therapists who meet with us every day tomorrow for their free sessions with me. And I sit with them and we go through their cases and we discuss them. So one of the gifts that I am really proud of and glad to give you is 30 years of expertise. You know, to give this away from you is such a gift. And for those of you who want to take courses or read books or go to the treatment center, you know, that pays for everyone to get the stuff that's free. But I'm really thrilled as- But it's still a really good value. I'm like, you know, like, yes, 
but but honestly to have a life-changing experience for the and the level of expertise you know that happens at our um uh, treatment i mean i'm blown away by our expert treatment clinical team and you are there working with clients i think the work groups are solid they're live facilitated not just watching a video the 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 fee-based stuff is still a very you know, as low cost as we can have it be, you know, to provide the level of care that we do. So to have a life-changing experience, not experience a divorce, not have to, I mean, it, it's worth, it's worth every penny. So sorry. To well, and I wanted to say to you, Tammy, that this is where we started the whole mm-hmm. thing today, which is how grateful I am. And we are to have had so many terrible experiences in the past that we can turn them around and make ourselves useful to you. And some of that is paid and some of that is unpaid and some, you know, whatever. But Tate, you know, I wish I'd had um, uh, teachers and parents who could actually help me how to be a better person. Some teachers did, but I didn't have a family that could. I had to figure that out in the 12 steps in therapy, how to be a decent person, not hurt people. Please take advantage of what we have to offer, um, whether it's free or paid or whatever it is, because you, there aren't a lot more experts at this level out there on a whole bunch of levels than me and Tammy. So anyway, well, bless peer, you folks. I want the peer case consultation. Those are the people that I general, generally refer to because they are coming and they're asking for input. They're asking, Am I, do I have a blind spot on this or what is going to help me do the very best work for my client, betrayed partner or addict or the couple. And I love that about them. And I appreciate that you give an hour of your week to talk to them free, you know, to help them do the work with more integrity. So that's, it's, you know, it's, it's great. So. Thank you for listening to this episode of Overcoming Betrayal and Addiction. If our words have led you to seek help, please reach out. You can always find us at www.seekingintegrity.com.